0: All right, Psalm chapter 77. We're continuing in our series through this summer, a Summer of the Psalms, and we're coming to the close of it just to give you an idea of where we're headed the next couple weeks. So I'll, I'll preach one more psalm next week, uh, and then Pastor John will be preaching, I believe, Psalm 23. Is that right, Pastor John? Uh, on the 22nd, and then we have a great gift in that the 29th, uh, our brother Nate Bishop is going to be coming to proclaim the word from Forest Baptist Church. Some of you know Nate, we've done a lot with him. I probably need to confirm with him, because we set this up months ago, and I haven't actually talked to him, but I'm assuming he's still coming. Uh, but he'll, he'll come and preach, and then we'll be, we'll be starting something new at the beginning of September, so stay tuned for that. The reason I say stay tuned is because I haven't narrowed down where we're going just yet, uh, but we'll... Uh, Esther is in the running for that, to work through the book of Esther, but we'll see, we'll see where the Lord takes us. But this morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm 77, and it's a, it's a heavy text. It really is, and I think you'll see that as we work through it. So I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's Word as we read Psalm chapter 77. If you don't have your Bible with you, that's all right. It should be on the screen <clears throat> over there to your right. Psalm chapter 77 begins for the choir director according to Jeduthon of Asaph, a psalm. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and He will hear me. I sought the Lord in my day of trouble. My hands were continually lifted up all night long. I refused to be comforted. I think of God. I groan. I meditate. My spirit becomes weak, Selah. You have kept me from closing my eyes. I am troubled and cannot speak. I consider days of old, years long past. At night I remember my music. I meditate in my heart and my spirit ponders. Will the Lord reject forever and never again show favor? Has his faithful love ceased forever? was His promise at an end for all generations. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has He in anger withheld His compassion? Selah. So I say I am grieved that the right hand of the Most High has changed. I will remember the works or the Lord's works. Yes, I will remember your ancient wonders. I will reflect on all that you have done and meditate on your actions. God, your way is Holy. What God is great like God? You are the God who works wonders. You revealed your strength among the peoples with power. You redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. The water saw you, God. The water saw you and it trembled. Even the depths shook. The clouds poured down water, the storm clouds thundered, your arrows flashed back and forth. The sound of your thunder was in the world. When lightning lit up the world, the earth shook and quaked. Your way went through the sea, and your path through the vast water. But your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron, Heavenly Father. God, as we reflect on your goodness, especially in those moments when it seems so dark, I pray that this word would be a comfort to someone this morning, that it would be a balm for their soul, and that perhaps by the Spirit's power, it might be light in the midst of a long night. God, I pray that you will give me spiritual and physical strength as I preach your word to your people for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I've tagged this morning's message, when the night is long, but God is good. When the night is long, but God is good. On October 30th, 2011, park rangers in Wyoming, they received a call from the local police dispatch. A group of climbers were stuck on the side of a mountain entitled Devil's Tower. Now let's pause there for a minute. I feel like if something is named Devil's Tower, that might not be the place to go climb. I'm just throwing that out there for any of you. I don't know if Chris is still in here. I know he goes and climbs mountains all the time, but maybe avoid Devil's Tower in Wyoming. But these climbers, what they had done, is they would planned a day trip. The goal was to get up early, to go to scale, to summit, and then to rappel back down. And when you're doing a trip like that, I've actually done a few like that. Uh, the climb is the long part, but the rappel is quick. It's easy. You're coming down fast on a rope. You're not climbing. It goes pretty quick. And so their plan was to do a day trip. They were going to climb up, rappel down, be home before dark. But what happened was that after they reached the summit, they reached the top and it was time to rappel down, uh, one of the climbers rappelled down to kind of a middle of the the mountain, if you will. And then the the plan was for, for the remaining four, so there were five of them total, for the remaining four to pull the rope back up. And then three of them would be lowered, and then they'd pull the rope back up, and the fifth and final person would rappel down and join them. However, after the first person rappelled down, about midway on the rock face, as they were pulling the rope up, it got stuck. It got stuck in a crack. Now, you might be thinking, well, just pull it really hard. If you've never rock climbed before, when when a rope gets wedged into a crack of the rock, there's no way to get that thing out unless you can climb to where it is in the crack and literally kind of pull that thing out. So when the rope gets stuck, they know that they're in trouble. But here's where it got dangerous. It was already getting late into the evening and the climbers weren't prepared for winter, winter conditions. Now, again, it's mid-October. And so what happens on mountains, especially if you're climbing, is a warm afternoon, a warm fall afternoon can very quickly, when you're when you're at the peak of a mountain or midway up it, can turn to sub-zero or sub-freezing temperatures when the sun goes down. And that's what was expected. So what was a 60, 70 degree day would turn into a 20 degree night. And they weren't prepped for that. So they called for help. And there were two rangers who responded. And what these two rangers did was they enlisted the help of three seasoned climbers from the area. One of them happened to be a medical doctor as well, which I feel like you got a pretty good resume if you're considered like a, 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 an elite climber and you're also a medical doctor. Uh, Chris, you might need to step your game up. Uh, we got to add some rock climbing to your resume. That would be great. And they were sending him particularly to make sure when they got there that they were Okay. And so the plan was that these three experienced climbers would climb up to them with additional gear, additional ropes, so that they then could all rappel down. But here's where the concern came in. They knew that it would take some time for these climbers to get to them. The rescue climbers were set to depart at 10 p.m., which means they wouldn't arrive to them until about 4 a.m. So basically, these climbers were to spend the night up there without any protection, without any gear. And so the concern for everyone involved, the rangers, the rescue climbers, and the stranded climbers, was can they make it through the night? Can they survive the cold? That's what they were worried about. The, the rescue climbers were prepared to, to get up there and find that hypothermia had set in and that they were in trouble. You can probably imagine that that was a long night for those climbers. I'm not going to belabor it. They got rescued. That's the end of the story. But the reason I tell you all of that is because for many in this room, we've experienced those times when the night was just really long. We've experienced seasons in life when it seems like the darkness just won't end. Maybe... Maybe you're here this morning and you're in one of those seasons right now. And so my hope this morning is that you will see and believe that when the night is long, God is good. See, what we see in Psalm 77 is Asaph giving us, giving us an inside glimpse into one of the dark moments in his life. And he shows us how it was ultimately the goodness of God that got him through. And I, I'm going to be transparent with you this morning Throughout the years, Psalm 77 has been an anchor for me in my Christian life. Some of you, if you've been around me for ministry, if you were there at the beginning about 10 years ago, you've heard me preach Psalm 77 before. I'm going to do it a little different this time, but it's always been an anchor for me in my Christian life. It's by far one of the most meaningful chapters of Scripture to me, but it's also one of the scariest. The reason it scares me so much is because the moments when I need the truth of Psalm 77 the most, those are the moments when I'm in the deepest pit of despair. Those are those moments when the night just seems so long. And again, transparency. I've, I've found myself there at times. The honest truth, I want you to hear this, is that many great men and women of faith have found themselves in some of the darkest pits of agony and despair and pain. But I want to contend here this morning at the very beginning, I, I want you to hear me say this. That I think one of the saddest things to me is that for some reason, we've developed this posture in the church where we have to always be okay where we can't struggle, and, 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 and the belief is that if you're struggling, if you're in that pit, if you're, if you're in the midst of agony and despair, then somehow your faith is lacking. But I want you to hear me say this very clearly. Being in a valley of despair, being in the depths of depression or agony, being in that place, it does not define your faith. What defines your faith is what you do when you find yourself in that valley. Here's how I know this. Because even Jesus was in such a place of agony and despair in the Garden of Gethsemane that he sweat blood. Now, I've been in some low points in my life but I can tell you I've never been so low that my capillaries burst under stress and blood poured out of my skin. But none of us would look at Jesus and say, oh, you of little faith. So clearly, being in that place does not necessarily mean a lack of faith. But it's what we do in those moments that defines how strong or how weak our faith might be. And again, I'm I'm kind of pleading for some some transparency this morning from you, and I'm going to try to get it from me, but I I just want to be honest. I mean, we've got to reckon with the fact that faith in Jesus just does not always consist of happy moments and good moments and celebrations. It's not always like that. And I think the reason for that, as Scripture declares to us, is because it's in hard moments when faith is forged. It's in hard moments where God is doing something in our lives that we just can't do on our own. And so what I want to do this morning is, is walk through this text, and, and, and I really just have two main headings for you. So if, if you're a, a point taker, which I am, I'm one of those people, I, I, have, I have two points for you this morning, two sides of As, Asaph's struggle, if you will, that I want you to notice. And they come straight from the title. So the first thing that I want you to see is, the, is, is when the night is long. And I, and I just want to pause there for a minute. When, when the night is long. Let's, let's look again at verses... Verses 1 through 9. I'm sorry, 1 through 10. Asaph says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. I sought the Lord in my day of trouble. My hands were continually lifted up all night long. I refuse to be comforted. He says, I think of God and I groan. He says, I meditate and my spirit becomes weak. Selah. You have kept me from closing my eyes. I am troubled and and cannot speak. I consider the days of old, years long past. At night, I, I remember, I remember my music. Nope, yeah, sorry. At night, I remember my music. I meditate in my heart, and my spirit ponders. Will the Lord reject forever and never again show favor? Has his faithful love ceased forever? Is his promise at an end for all generations? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Selah. So I say I am grieved that the right hand of the Most High has changed. This this psalm, as I mentioned, it's written... It's written by Asaph. You might remember, we talked a little bit about Asaph earlier on in the series, that Asaph, he's attributed with writing 12 psalms. And you may remember that Asaph is a a descendant of, of Levi. He was charged by King David to be a choir master of sorts. He was charged with leading the people of God in worship. And one thing I love about Asaph is if you read any of his 12 songs, you see that Asaph's just an honest guy. He's honest, and he's honest here in this, in this account. He's recounting a time of deep despair, and as he does so, he pulls no punches. He reveals his heart and his struggle and his, his despair in a ways that I think we so frequently reveal about ourselves. Now again, you might have noticed that this is one of those times when we don't know what it is that's causing ASAP this despair. We've seen it in some of our other Psalms where there's a struggle, there's a problem, or maybe we've seen it somewhere there's a joy and there's a triumph, but we're not directly told what it is. And as we've seen with, with some of those other Psalms, God does this on purpose because God in his kindness is using ASAP to provide for us a framework in which we can understand despair and agony and struggle and understand the process of fighting. And it does It doesn't matter what's causing the despair. It doesn't matter why we are in the valley. He is still giving us a framework by which we fight. And that's good news to us because we find ourselves in the valley of despair for so many different reasons. Sometimes our heartache and our agony is is brought about by the fact that we have an enemy that is fighting against us, who is prowling around, looking for someone that he can devour. Sometimes, and this is a hard one, sometimes we find ourselves in the pit of agony because God is working on us. And it's not Satan, but it's God's very hand. There are other times we find ourselves in the pits of agony, if we can be honest, because we just we made really stupid choices. And it hurts because there are consequences. But the good news about Psalm 77 is whatever, for whatever reason we find ourselves in the pit of despair, in the pit of agony, when the night is long, Asaph's giving us a framework by which we can fight. So I want to walk through these verses and just consider, consider this idea about when the night is long. Look again at verse 1. Asaph begins and he says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God. And he will hear me. And this is, this is important. It, it, it's very significant for the psalm. And it goes to what I was speaking about early, earlier. Because Asaph, at the very beginning of his struggle, is depending on God. His struggle is not because he's lacking faith. The first thing that he says is, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God. And and his repetition there reveals his earnestness in seeking the Lord. And so Asaph is, is beginning to fight and he's depending on the Lord. And he's saying, God, it's you and you alone who I'm seeking for deliverance. He expects God to hear and he is believing that God will. But we we start to catch a glimpse of even in the midst of that faith, how long the night in his soul is. Because he says in verses two and three, I sought the Lord in my day of trouble. My hands were continually lifted up all night long. I refused to be comforted. I think of God. I groan. I meditate. My spirit becomes weak. Selah. So what Asaph's revealing here is he's saying, listen, I'm crying out to God. I'm crying for God to hear me, to deliver me, to redeem me, to help me understand. Day and night I am crying out. He says, during the day I seek the Lord and it's to no avail. He says, and at night his hands are outstretched to the Lord and still there is no rest for him. His soul refuses to be comforted. But what this reveals is profound for us. It's a reminder to us that just because God hears, it doesn't mean he has to immediately answer. You see, you know, we've said this around new breed before, you know that when you pray and you ask God for something, there are only three answers that God will give you yes, no, or what? Wait. Yes, no, or wait. And so typically though, when we think about God telling us to wait, we're not thinking of it in terms of going through a season of struggle like this. When we typically think of God telling us to wait, we think about prayers where, where perhaps we ask God if we should move to another job. And God says, no, no, not right now, wait. Or maybe, maybe we think of prayers where we say, God, will you, will you give me a spouse? Will, will, will you give me a child? Will you do this thing for me? Give me this thing I want. And, and God says, wait. And, and I think often we're, we're a little bit more okay with God saying wait in some of those situations. But, but what happens when we are in the throes of despair and we say, God, help me to see your grace and your mercy and your goodness. And he says, wait. Now, I want you to hear this we have to be so careful when we're dealing with matters of our heart and our soul and God says wait we have to be careful that we don't interpret that to mean that God is not listening and maybe it's just me but even as I wrote that like it brought tears to my eyes I think that's my struggle so often is I'm saying, God, what I'm praying for is a good thing. It's in line with Scripture. You said that if we pray according to your will, that we'll have those things, and I'm praying for something that I clearly see in Scripture, and I think it would bring you glory, and it would bring you honor, and it would do my soul so much good, yet you're telling me to wait. And sometimes when I get the wait answer, my tendency is to think, God just must not hear me. And I forget that wait can be a necessary response from God. We have to remember that in the waiting moments, God is not doing nothing. Oftentimes when God, what God is doing is he is giving us what we need more than alleviating suffering. God is forging in us a faith. Perhaps God is taking us through the very process of James chapter 1. You remember James chapter 1? Consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, when you face trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And let perseverance have its full effect. That's why God says, wait. Because perseverance has to have its full effect. And he says, so that you may be perfect, complete, and lacking nothing. You've heard me say it again, but we talked about it two weeks ago. I'm going to keep reminding you because we need to remember, right? We have to remember is that in the midst of trial, God is doing something that only God can do. Because he gets to the end. He says that if perseverance has its full effect, then we will be made perfect, complete, and lacking nothing. I've tried, and I've not made myself perfect. I have tried and I have not been able to make myself complete. I have tried and I have not been able to be in the place where I am lacking nothing. And yet God says consider it joy when you're facing trials of various times because in that what God is doing is he is cultivating in you something that you cannot cultivate in yourself. Maybe you've tried to make yourself perfect and complete and lacking nothing. The only person who succeeded in perfect is my wife. She's not even here to hear that one. I'm going to need some text messages later, all right? She's not perfect. I was just kidding. Um. <laughs> it's in the midst of some of those long nights where God is doing a work only God can do, but it often comes when God refuses to alleviate the suffering that we are asking for him to alleviate, but it does not mean that God isn't doing anything. And one of the things I think we've lost in the American church, we, we, we talked about this. Some of you know, I'm, I'm a doctoral student. I'm doing a, a doctorate and I was in wake forest all this week. I'm doing it. at Southeastern Baptist seminary. Um, and one of the things that got said in my class, we were talking, talking about a lot of stuff, but, but one of the, the students said this, and, and I really appreciate it. He said, I think one of the things that we've lost in the American church is a real theology of suffering. And what he went on to explain is that we so often see suffering as the thing that needs to be removed from us in order to get to a place where we will look like God, right? Because we see that with we think of eternity, that in heaven there will be no more weeping, there will be no more, no more sin, there will be no more sickness, there will be no more disease. So ultimately in glory there will be no suffering. And so we see suffering in this life as the antithesis of glory. But what when we start to grow in our understanding and a richer theology of suffering, we start to see that it's suffering that will get us to glory. And I think Paul understood this because Paul says in Colossians 1.24, and this is profound. I don't have time to unpack it all, but maybe this week, go do, go do a study on, on Colossians 1.24 because Paul says, now I rejoice in my suffering for you. And listen to what he says, because I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's affliction for his body that is the church. I mean that's mind-boggling, where Paul says, I am rejoicing in the fact that I am suffering because as I suffering, I am, I am fulfilling, I am finishing the suffering that is lacking from Christ's suffering. Now there's a lot to unpack their theology. It doesn't mean that Christ's suffering wasn't enough or it wasn't sufficient, but Paul is basically saying, I rejoice in the fact that I'm privileged to step in and like my Savior suffer to make the body of Christ look more like Christ. But for so many of us, we see suffering as the thing that keeps us from glory. But suffering is the means by which God perfects us for glory. But this response from God, this weight response, it seems to be too much for Asaph. So much so that Asaph goes on to say that when he thinks of God, when he thinks of the greatest good the world could ever know, he moans and his spirit becomes faint. In other words, Asaph is being really honest to say that when God responds with weight, God just doesn't seem good. Oh, how long the night can be. But there's a break in the psalm with the words, Selah. We see it a few times in this text. You might have noticed that I intentionally read them. And there's, there's some ambiguity about what Selah actually means. But one of the, the more common understandings is we can't forget that these would have been songs to be sung. And so Selah is, is a direction to the choir master, the person leading. it. It's almost as if, for those of you who know music, he's saying he pause. Like a, a pause in the song. And we don't know why there's a pause. Maybe it's a melodic pause, but I I, I tend to believe that those pauses were significant because at those pauses was a stop and reflect. And, And so Asaph goes through this and he's saying, I'm crying out to God. I'm placing my faith in God. I'm asking for God to move and to work and to end this long night of the soul. And yet God says, wait, he doesn't do it. And so it seems to me... As if God is not good. And so now, when I think about God, my spirit groans. That's a sad place to be, but we've been there, haven't you? Have you been there? Where you think of God, and it's not a joyful, a celebratory, but you think of God and how He's working in your life, and it causes you to groan in your spirit. It causes you to turn from Him rather than run to Him. Y'all might just be holier than me, but for me, like I've been in that place. And it can hurt so bad. And so Asaph, he pauses. The song is meant to pause there and reflect on that truth. But then in verse 4, the song starts back again. And Asaph says, "You, you have kept me from closing my eyes. I am troubled and I cannot speak. And so Asaph is honest about the point that, listen, at night is a time to rest, but I can't rest. I can't even speak. The weight of this is so much. Again, can you sympathize at all with Asaph? Like have you just laid in your bed at night and your soul was so restless that you couldn't sleep? Your mind so troubled that when you tried to talk to God you just couldn't get words out. Has the night ever been that long? And we can't miss this. This is a real cry from a real man who is deeply hurting. And he just wants the pain to go away. We see this in verses 5 and 6. See, it's in verses 5 and 6 where Asaph says, all right, I'm, I'm going to fight myself to try to make this pain go away. And look, look at what he does. He says, I consider days of old, years long past. At night, I remember my music. I meditate in my heart and my spirit ponders. And so, what, again, what Asaph is doing is he's basically, he's trying to fix the pain himself. And the way that he's doing it, the way he's trying to pull himself up out of this pit is he does something that I think we often do. At least I've done it before. And it's not a horrible thing. What Asaph does is he basically says, I'm going to remember better times. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to think back to happier times in my life. I'm going to remember a time when it wasn't so bad, what it felt like, and maybe that will just kind of pull me out of this funk. Maybe that will be the thing that that will cause my soul to sing again. I'm just going to remember a better time. He says, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. The song he's speaking of is the same song that's in Psalm 42, verse 8. The Lord will send his faithful love by day. His song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. It's the the same song in Isaiah 30, verse 29. Your singing will be like that on the night of the holy festival. And your heart will rejoice like one who walks to the music of a flute going up to the mountain of the Lord, the rock of Israel. It's the same song in Job. 35.10, but no one asks, where is God my maker who provides us with songs in in the night? The song is is a God-given song of praise, and so he's saying, if God's telling me to wait, then I'm just going to think back and remember a time when God didn't tell me to wait, when he gave me that song of praise, and I'm going to reflect on that. I'm going to meditate on that. Asaph begins the process of attempting to remember better times in life. Now, this is where it gets tough because that that won't fix the problem. Because even in that, who's the focal point of the reflection? It's Asaph. I want to remember when I was good. I want to remember when I felt better. I want to remember when God gave me that song. And so he's looking to remedy his situation by thinking of better times for him. That's important. Hold on to that. We're going to come back to it. But if there's one thing that we know from Scripture when it comes to matters of our soul, we will never be strong enough to fix it on our own. You can ask Adam and Eve about it. When it came to matters of their soul and when they sinned and rebelled against God and they thought that they could fix it on their own, they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves, they tried to hide from the presence of God, it just didn't work. You could ask the people of God at Mount Sinai. When Moses went up to be with God, they got a little nervous. They said, has Moses left us? Has our leader gone? How will we know how to praise God? How will we know how to follow after him? He's the one who's leading us. Well, we might just have to do it on our own. Let's build for us this calf to remind us of who God is and let's worship him. It it didn't go well for them. You could ask King David. We talked about that last week with Psalm 51. He tried desperately to deal with his soul, and it didn't work. So it should not be surprising to us that Asaph does this because so many have done it before him. So many have done it after him. But it also shouldn't be surprising to us that it doesn't work. So look at where he ends there in verses 7 through 9. He says, will the Lord reject forever and never again show favor?" Has his faithful love ceased forever? Is his promise at an end for all generations? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Say, La, Asaph is still in agony. It didn't work. Reflecting on better times didn't fix the long night of his soul. So much so that he starts asking some really hard questions. And those questions just reveal where his soul is at. Has God rejected me? Will he ever show favor again? Has his love ended? Will he fulfill his promises? Has God's grace ended? Will he show me compassion? And often we, we read things like this. And even for me, it's hard to read those questions because there's a part of me that wants to be like, Dude, how do you ask that? But then I'm not in the season that he's in because I've been in some moments where those have been my questions. Does God really love me? Does he really care? It can be hard to hear, but when you get to that place, those are easy questions to ask. And honestly, I appreciate this about Asaph because Asaph lays his cards on the table. He hides nothing. See, it's one thing to hide our struggles from one another, and we do that. We'll walk into this place and put on the game face like everything's okay and hide the struggles from the people around us. It's another thing to think that you can hide those struggles from God, and Asaph's just at the point where he's like, I don't care what people think about me at this point. I know that God knows what's in my heart, so I might as well just say it. Man, it'd be good if some of us got to that place with one another man God already sees it so let me throw it out there like I'm, I'm questioning whether God loves me can you can you can you help man I feel I feel like God just hasn't that like grace isn't there anymore can, can you speak to that can you walk through that with me and that's what Asaph does he just lays his cards out on the table they turned his pain into a worship song you want to talk about putting yourself out there like, has God forgotten to be gracious? Let's sing that in the temple. But verse 10 is interesting. Because verse 10 sums up the questions. It says, so I say, I am grieved that the right hand of the Most High has changed. You're reading from an ESV or another translation, yours might not read like that, but that, that is the better translation. I am grieved that the right hand of of the most high has changed. Some translations say I will appeal to the right hand of the most high. But 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 the sense in the Hebrew there is not a like, I'm I'm hoping and looking. It's like, no, I I look, I look at the, the hand of God, the hand that that deals with me, that is strong, that is supposed to be mighty. And and when I see God working, it, it grieves me. Not only does that sum up all the questions, but it summarizes the problem. Now, now this is very significant. I know I've said that a couple times. Th- it's God's Word. It's all significant, so bear with me. I, I want you to, to catch what He is doing because I think if we can recognize when we do this in our own life, we can, we can really fight for joy when the night is long. What, what Asaph is doing is he is determining God's nature by his circumstances rather than determining his circumstances by God's nature. Now that's huge. So he's he's looking at what's going on around him and he is defining God by what he sees rather than looking to God and defining all the stuff going on around him by the God he knows. And so again, he lays it all out on the table. And so what we are left with at the end of verse 10 is a man many of us can relate to in one way or another, a man who is broken and who is crying out from the deepest part of his soul, a man in the depths of despair in the midst of the long night. But praise God that the psalm does not end there. Because after verse 11, the focus starts to shift, right? We saw the pain and the agony of trying to determine the nature of God by his circumstances. But then in verse 11, he's going to start remedying that and start defining his circumstances by what he knows to be true about God. The emphasis starts to change. He's no longer focused on the long night, but that God is good. And so in verse 11, right, like Asaph, yo Asaph starts preaching to us. Right, when trials come, but God is good. When agony hits, but God is good. When suffering falls on us, but God is good. When the night is long, but God is good. And so that leads us to the second thing that I want us to focus on as we we bring this towards its end. When the night is long, yes, but God is good. Look at verses 11 through 20 again. Asaph says, "I, I will remember the Lord's works. Notice the shift from what he was remembering before. I'm going to remember when I felt better. That didn't work. So now he says, well, let me remember who God is. I will remember the the Lord's works. Yes, I will remember your ancient wonders. I will reflect on all that you have done and meditate on your actions. God, your way is holy. What God is great like? Our God. You are the God who works wonders. You revealed your strength among the peoples. With power, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. The water saw you, God, the water saw you, it trembled, even the depths shook, the clouds poured down water, the storm clouds thundered, your arrows flashed back and forth, the sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind, lightning lit up the world, the earth shook and quaked, your way went through the sea and your path through the vast water, but your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So this shift is very important. Going back to what we just mentioned, what Asaph does here is a little different than what took place in verses 5 and 6. In 5 and 6, Asaph appealed to the good times in his life to to determine the character of God. In verse 11, he appeals to the good God who is timeless. So in verses 5 and 6, he's evaluating God by his circumstance, but in verse 11, he begins to evaluate his circumstances by a good God. And what we see beginning to take place is an intentional renewal of his mind. This is the means by which we begin the process of fighting back when the night is long. The goal is ultimately not to change how we feel. It's to change how we think. So Asaph begins to dwell on two things in verses 11 through 15. Who God is and what he has done. Who God is and what he's done. Asaph begins to force himself to take his eyes off of himself and to place them on God. Now, I want to be clear. It's easy for us to sit in this room and say, yeah, we should all do that. In the midst of the long night, that is a hard thing to do. It is hard to take your eyes off of your circumstances and to place them on a good, holy, and loving God when everything you're feeling tells you that's not true of God. But it's in those moments where we have to renew our mind and trust that God is strong enough to then change our feelings. You see, remember verse 3? He said, I think of God and I groan. I meditate and my spirit becomes weak. Say la. Now here in verse 11, he says, nevertheless, I'm going to appeal to God. I'm going to look to him. I will remember the Lord's works. Yes, I will remember your ancient wonders. I will remember who you are. I will remember how you have, how you have been and, and what you have done. In other words, Asaph takes his mind off himself and focuses on two things. He, t- he thinks about the godness of God and the goodness of God. The, the godness of God and the goodness of God. In other words, he, he forces himself to remember that God is God. And he is not God. That that God is the one who rules, that God is the one who reigns, that God is the one who has spoken everything that exists into creation. Therefore, he is judge, he is ruler, he he is king, he is lord over this. And so, so it's dangerous when we start putting that God on our level and think we have the right to judge him. And so he dwells on the godness of God. But then he starts to think about the goodness of God. Have you ever thought about the, the fact, brothers and sisters, that God did not have to be good after did not have to be good to us after he created us? Like God is the definer of good. There was no external force forcing God to, to be this way. Like if all God did was create us and rule over us with this iron hand, he still would have been worthy of worship. Yet he has chosen to be good to us. As well. So Asaph begins to think about the godness of God and the goodness of God. And I just want to tell you practically that the only way you and I can do this, that we can dwell on these realities, is through the word of God. Through the word of God. We are tempted in those seasons when the very thought of God makes us groan, we are tempted to run from his word. And yet his word is the very breath of life that we need when we can't catch our breath in the midst of pain. So here, Asaph begins to intentionally renew his mind about who God is and what he has done. But he remembers something in verse 15, and I I love this. So in verse 15, he says, with power you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. That's Selah that comes immediately after that seems out of place to me. It does. Because it's like, boy, he's on a roll. Like, he's at that part of the song, right? Where, like, you want to keep singing. You want to say the words that come next. Because as he's, he's proclaiming this, right? He says, God, your way is holy. What God is like, is like is great like God. You are the God who works wonders. You revealed your strength among the peoples with, with power. You redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. Stop. Pause. Like he's building to something. That's bad form in music. You don't crescendo to a stop. But he stops. He pauses. la. You see, as Asaph is recounting what God has done, not just in his own life, but in creation, it's almost as if he's just spouting out things that he can remember about God. Like, you, you're a holy God. There, there's no God like, like you can see him fighting, fighting for joy in the long night, fighting to remember who God is. You, know, you, you are holy, what God is great like you. You've you've worked wonders, you've revealed your strength, you, you, with, with power, you've redeemed your people. Pause. It's almost as if he just found the answer he was looking for. You redeem your people pause. And then he just wants to stay there. That's why he says next. The water saw you, God. The water. Now, Now he's thinking about this redemption. The water saw you. They saw you and it trembled. Even the depths shook, the clouds poured down water, the storm clouds thundered, your arrows flashed back and forth, the sound of your thunder was in the world, when lightning lit up the world, the earth shook and quaked, your way went through the sea and your path through the vast water, but your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. What's the redemption he's thinking about? Anybody know? You can talk. Egypt. Asaph is thinking about the greatest story of redemption that he knows. He says, God, you've redeemed your people. Wait a minute. I remember that redemption. I remember that story. They came across this water and you would think that they they were done. But God, you're so good that the water quakes before you you split the sea, you delivered your people by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And so what Asaph does is he plants himself in the majesty of God's redemption. Again, the greatest picture he had of God delivering was God delivering Israel from the hand of Pharaoh and slavery in Egypt. And so he plants himself. And for Asaph, this reminder of God's unmerited redemption is the very Thing his soul so desperately needs. I love what Dr. Dorrington Little says about this. He says, Asaph's cry in verse 1 is drowned out by the thunder of God's redeeming voice in 18. You see, when we remember the arms of our Savior, because for us, our greatest rem- reminder of redemption is not Egypt, it's Jesus. And you see, when when we remember the arms of our Savior stretched out wide on the cross, the blood bought forgiveness on that tree and the empty tomb that declares our victory, we find hope in the midst of agony. We can find rest for our weary souls. We find peace for our troubled minds. It is in redemption where we are gently led out of the depths of despair to a hilltop of hope where we can once again declare, it is well with my soul. It is in redemption that we find the answers to the questions that plague our soul. Has God rejected me? No. God is for me. Who can be against me? Will he show me favor? He has shown me immeasurable favor in Christ Jesus. Has his love ended? No. It forever sprinkles down from an old rugged cross. Will he fulfill his promises? All of God's promises find their yes in Christ. Has God's grace ended? No. His grace is still sufficient for me. Will He show me compassion every day of my life because He holds me in the palm of His hand. It is at the cross of Christ where our hope is renewed. It is at the cross of Christ where joy is found. It is at the cross of Christ where the words of Psalm 42 ring true of us. Why are you cast down O my soul and why so much turmoil within me? Hope in God for I shall again praise Him my salvation. It is at the cross of Christ where we We can rest when the night is long because God has proven to be good. And brothers and sisters, please hear me. There will be long nights of the soul. But there is hope because there is a good, good God who has redeemed and has promised to redeem again. And it's there we rest. It's there we rest. And I just want to encourage you. All of our hope is in that Jesus. That when we've rebelled against him, we have sinned against God's glory, we have become his enemy. He has loved us so much that he sent Jesus to die on the cross in our place. He was crucified and buried, and he rose from the dead with victory. And in the story of the gospel, we have a living, breathing testimony that in the midst of our darkest moments, God will work for our greatest good. Because make no mistake, the Garden of Gethsemane was one of Jesus' darkest moments. But we know what happened. Some four days later, when he walked out of a tomb, God used the longest night for the world's greatest good. And so we've got to trust that when the night is long, God is still good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it sounds weird for me to even say, God, but I thank you that you saw fit to tell us of the pain of Asaph and the struggle that he He endured. But more than Asaph's story, I thank you that his story reminds us of a greater story. It reminds us of a God who redeems and who saves. It reminds us of a God who has proven his faithfulness over and over and over again. So Lord, I want to ask for grace. Grace. I want to ask for grace to trust you that in those hard moments, we would not judge you by our circumstances, but that we would judge our circumstances by what we know to be true of you. That you work through hard times to make us perfect, complete, and lacking nothing. That you work through the difficult moments for the good of your people and the building up of your body. That you work through the hard moments to make us look more like Jesus. We're reminded in Hebrews that Jesus was considered unworthy of the city, therefore he suffered outside the gate. And then the author of Hebrews says, therefore let us go to Him outside the gate, believing and trusting that you perfect through suffering. Believing that when we get to the other side of this life and we look back, we will understand the words of Paul that this light momentary affliction was indeed creating an eternal weight of glory. Glory. God I also pray that we would, we would be keeping a close watch on our brothers and sisters who may who may be struggling and not, not wanting to talk about the long night. I don't know how to talk about the long night, and I pray that we would we would fight for one another by encouraging each other with the truth that. Our God redeems. And that you're good at it, God. So we give you praise and glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.